Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Yom Kippur sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. Early in my career, I had a conversation with one of my dearest mentors, Rabbi Bill Libo, my rabbinical school dean. He's beloved throughout the movement and the country as the rabbi's rabbi. He's a true master of his craft, as wise as he is gentle and loving. I was going through a rough patch. There were some hard things in my own life, confronting what seemed to be relentless waves of painful things that members of my community were dealing with. Plus, things were just challenging in the shul itself, financially, regarding leadership and logistics and the shul's future. I was struggling. I remember taking Rabbi Libo out to dinner in New York City, and I vented, and I complained. This was not the way it was supposed to be. It should be easier than this. I may even have cried. And he listened with great patience and empathy. And then he responded with a simplicity that were it any other person could have come off as cold and heartless. Instead, it landed as filled with wisdom and understanding, a firm but loving slap in the face to bring me back to reality. He said, Adam, this is life. Life is pain. I remember sitting there being stunned. I was hoping for a hug. (laughs) What I was getting was a version of tough love. And he continued something like this. I don't remember verbatim, but it was something like this. The first sentences I remember verbatim. He said to me, Adam, life is divorce. And life is struggling to pay bills. And life is losing your religious school director a week before the school year. And life is illness. And life is death. Sure, there are, we hope, many great moments of unexpected and planned joy and sweetness and serenity. But what you're going through now, he said, and what your community is going through now, this is life. So the questions are, do you want to live if this is life? And if so, how? On some level, that's the whole sermon. So, gudyantif and (laughs) the meaningful fast. Because there may be no truer and more important words to let sink in over and over and over again. Life is hard for us, for everyone. Now go live it. I'm reminded of the hauntingly beautiful words that were written by the late, great Rabbi Alan Liu of Blessed Memory. Particularly this time of year, Rabbi Liu's most well-thumbed book is his masterpiece on the high holiday season. The book is entitled, This is Real and You Are Completely Unprepared. (laughs) When he got to writing about Ne'ilah, Rabbi Liu writes about what he sees and feels when he looks out at his kahal his congregation as Yom Kippur wanes. 
He, the rabbi who knows this community's pains and broken bones and broken hearts and cancers and bankruptcies and embarrassing intimacies. These are his words. When I see this great trembling multitude sitting before me at Neila, I feel as if I'm in the presence of a single trembling heart. And I look down at the thousands of faces washed over by an innocence so immense that it covers over everyone. And everyone becomes one suffering, innocent heart. I identify with Rabbi Lou and his identification with and almost inhabiting the full array of emotions and human experiences and frailties represented by this whole community. You all share so much with me. I see and I'm lifted up by your high moments. And I feel your many low moments palpably. Rabbi Lou continues, quote, Each face I now see has been formed by the same suffering, a suffering that has sunken its cheeks and lined its brow and hooded its eyes. Every face I now see is like this. The suffering is visible like the lines of force on a geological formation, like the garland of all their prayers taken together, which came to rest on God's head. Seems to me that Rabbi Lou understood the powerful truth of Rabbi Libo. Life breaks us down. Life is different than we expected it at times. Life can be less than we think that we deserved. And that's life. So go try and live. Raise your hands if you ever come across the meme, Welcome to Holland. Or, it's all Holland. The former phrase, Welcome to Holland, was coined by the poet Emily Pearl Kingsley in a short essay she wrote in the 1980s. In Welcome to Holland, Kingsley analogizes the experience of having a disabled child to preparing for a trip to Italy only to land and hear the pilot announce that you're in Holland. It isn't what you expected. It's not what you planned for or what you wanted. The question is, what do you do now? And in a piece written by Dr. Rifka Press-Schwartz, a New York-based Jewish educator, she wrote this. I find the essay, the Welcome to Holland essay, powerful and moving, but too narrow in its focus. It's not that parenting a disabled child is Holland. All parenting is Holland. And all of life is Holland. You make plans, you get a guidebook, and you find out you're ending up someplace entirely different than you expected. This is Dr. Rifka Press-Schwartz's words. That another parent's Holland may be harder or more painful than yours doesn't negate that every single one of us faces things that aren't what we plan for, that we just have to adjust to. Sometimes you know you're in Holland as soon as your child arrives in the world. Sometimes you learn you're in Holland three or 13 or 30 years later. Some Holland is temporary and passes. Some Holland is lifelong. Some is awful. And some is just unexpected. But it's all Holland, quote. By the way, 
Nothing against Holland. <laughs> Particularly for the Dutch born and raised amongst us. Okay? There's some nice canals there. And when it gets really, really cold, there's the Elfstedentocht to enjoy. Ask the Stoyers about it. But if you expected Rome and you walk off the plane in Maastricht, it can throw you for a loop. And such is life in the micro and the macro seemingly every darn day. What can be done about this? Some circumstances can be changed, and if they are miserable and they're changeable, might as well try. But many cannot. And so what do we do when we confront those? When we confront those children that are harder to raise and educate than we imagined they would be. Those professional situations that are okay and tolerable, but somehow less than we thought our careers could aspire to. Or that lump that might be a tumor, which threatens so much in our lives or the lives of those that we love. Or the expense of life, which just leaves us with less discretionary income than we thought we would have to play and to travel, to treat our loved ones, to spend on the things that we want beyond the things that we absolutely need. I learned a deep wisdom from my friend Rabbi David Ingber, and it speaks to this common and ubiquitous phenomenon of finding ourselves in Holland, as it were. The wisdom is really true, I think. It can also land as harsh, at least at first. But I think beyond the pierce of the harshness, there's a possibility of serenity and a full embrace of what life is and what life isn't. One day, about five summers ago, he and I were talking about the topic of avodazara, idolatry. In the ancient world, it was real idolatry. Idolatry was worshiping other false deities. I'm not sure we have a lot of Baal worshipers amongst us today or those who would be tempted to bring offerings to the god Molech. But we have idols in our society. And we engage in idolatry. And we bow down to things that we ascribe far too much authority to, things to which we are far too deeply bound. As we were discussing this topic, Rabbi David said this, and I'm going to say it twice so it sinks in. He said, I think the most insidious idolatry is bowing down to the idol of what you thought your life was going to be, what you were sure you deserved. The most insidious idolatry is bowing down to the idol of what you thought your life was going to be and what you were sure you deserved. What is harsh about this is that it names me and you and everyone in less than ideal circumstances as ultimately responsible. Not responsible for creating it, but responsible if we wallow in it. We all like to vent. It is very cathartic to complain. No one looks forward to unloading a burden they are struggling with on the shoulder of another and then being told, deal with it. But I wonder if past our initial discomfort with it if what Rabbi Lebo told me years ago and what Rabbi Ingber said about idolatry is our best chance at living in Holland and finding light there. If you're willing to, and no one will know if you did or not, do a quick thought experiment in your head. What version of life that you are not living 
are you still worshiping? Are you still certain that you deserved? And maybe even that you were owed? And in what way is that worshiping, that hoping, that idolizing about Paris or Rome or a different health situation or financial situation or love situation, in what way is that making it harder to live in Holland? Because after all, that is where you live. Now, not all Hollands are the same. There are degrees. Some live in a Holland just slightly more rainy than they expected on their vacation. Or even maybe a Holland prettier than more joyful than they ever could have imagined for themselves. And some live in a Holland beset by flooding where they can barely keep their heads above water. Most of us live in the middle of those extremes. But wherever we are on the spectrum, idolizing and idealizing and pining for the life that we want but don't have, it rarely helps. Rabbi Ingber had a childhood friend named Alan Brown. When Alan was 21 years old, tragedy struck. This is Alan's telling of what happened in his own words. On January 2nd, 1988, I was lying in the surf in Martinique. The undertow had pulled my legs out from under me and flipped me upside down onto the hard sand. Face down and under the water and unable to breathe, I knew something was dramatically wrong. I was in the prime of my life and now immobile. Nothing moved. I was paralyzed. How could this have happened? My life flashed in front of me, playing ice hockey, walking around New York City, running races in Central Park, throwing baseballs. In a split second, my life changed forever. At the age of 21, a quadriplegic, confined to a wheelchair, how would I continue? Alan found himself in an excruciating, unfathomable Holland, a Holland as close to intolerable as possible. I can't imagine the morose feelings, the demoralization, the railing against what was and what could never be that Alan must have gone through. And how tempting it must have been for Alan to bow down to the idol of a life with four working limbs. A life he deserved. To bow down to that idol forever and then not just be paralyzed from walking, but be paralyzed from living I'm certain that Alan had very, very dark days. But at some point, he stopped only wishing he were in Rome. He began to live fully in Holland. Among other things, Alan dedicated his life to trying to cure paralysis. He worked closely with the Christopher Reeve Foundation and has a named fund to this day within that foundation. And through immense struggle, he regained some use of his hands and he now says he uses them to hold his kids' faces. He regained some use of his legs, too, and more than two decades since his catastrophe, and since his last time alone in the water, he did the first leg of a team triathlon and swam nearly a mile off the coast of Belmar, New Jersey. He may have been swimming in New Jersey, <laughs> but deep down, he was swimming and living, and finding a way to thrive in Holland. This is not what he asked for. It's not what his parents hoped for him. But it is what he got. 
And rather than worshiping the version of life he never got to live, he decided to live the only version that he had. He was living Rabbi Lebo's wisdom. If this is life, do you want to live it? And if so, how? Now, Holland can be ruthless, becoming a quadriplegic while swimming in the Caribbean. Holland can be shared worldwide, like trying to raise and educate kids during COVID on screens and confronting the end of high school or college in a pandemic and never getting those moments, those quasi-graduations back. Holland can be bitterly sad, losing loved ones before their time and always wondering what more years would have been like, years that will never return. Holland can overwhelm us because it's hard. And Holland can overwhelm us more if we keep idolizing what it would have been like in Rome. Of the many associations with Yom Kippur, one of the least well-known is the one connected to our patriarch, Yosef, Joseph. The connections themselves are for another class or sermon, but for now, the reason I'm mentioning it is because Joseph's story took place, of course, in the land of Israel and in Egypt, but also very much in Holland. Can we give voice to Joseph during the many stops on his descent into Egypt, away from the life he thought he would live? How did I get here? I was just dreaming. It felt good to imagine being royalty for a minute. And now my brothers want me, to, me dead, and I'm in a pit rather than being with my father. I'm sold to slavery. The pit and Potiphar's house and the prison, those were all Hollands for Joseph. And even when he emerged and life turned better, he was far, far, far from home. He shaved his head. He learned a new language. He changed his name from Joseph to Tsofnat Paneach, an Egyptian name. And he adjusts to Egypt, to Holland. As he does so, the Torah gives us clues that Joseph is embracing his new reality. Painfully, but in a determined way. When he names his oldest son Manasseh, it's because the Torah says, Nashani Elohim et kol beit avi. For God has helped him forget his father's home. That's tragic on some level. But how could Joseph have survived and how could he have thrived if he didn't in some way put his former life and the life he thought he would get behind him? And we know how it turned out. Without that successful adjustment to Holland, without somehow jettisoning the fantasy that he could undo everything, there's no becoming second in command to Pharaoh. There's no reunion with his brothers or with his father. There's no launching of the full Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, descended from all of the sons of Jacob. There's a poignant scene with all the brothers after Jacob dies. They are afraid that Jacob will take revenge because they shipped him off to Holland. Instead, Joseph says the following, Elohim chashava tova. It's very hard to translate. It's something like this. Whatever you all tried to do to muck up my life, to throw me into endless pits and to consign me to the worst version of Holland, God determined that it would be for good. Now, if you struggle with the theological connotations there, as if God is forcing every move in life, consider the following rendering of that verse by my colleague, Rabbi Shir Yaakov Fight. What Joseph was saying there, according to Rabbi Fight, was my detours were my destinations. My detours were my destinations. In other words, 
I made Holland my home. Joseph's embrace of Holland brings me to the memory of Dr. Paula Naiman. She was my children's first pediatrician. When I met her in the spring of 2000, she remained an active physician in her mid-70s. She had a gentle touch, an incisive mind, and the most exquisite bedside manner. But her life had just recently been turned upside down months before I met her. She and her husband, Teddy, who was also a physician, had just recently moved up to Monroe full-time, closing their New York City practices, and making what had been a weekend escape for them into their, lo- their new life normal. They had earned this. He retired completely, she worked part-time, and they were both eager for these long-awaited golden years. Their love was intact and palpable. Their physical bodies were hale and well. They were looking forward to trips and theater and opera and communal service and memory-making with grandchildren as their new full-time jobs. And then Teddy started showing signs of Alzheimer's. And the descent was quick, and it was brutal. On him, for sure, but so much so on Paula. She tried to keep a stiff upper lip, including when she drove to my home in a panic on Shabbat afternoon because she didn't know what to do. Teddy was out of sorts, and he was screaming and incoherent and demanding to see the rabbi now. I can still remember the look on her face as I came out of my house that Shabbat afternoon. This was the look of a proud woman who had just realized that she had landed in Holland. And this was not Paula's most horrific Holland. In 1941, the Nazis invaded 15-year-old Paula's hometown. Her family was transported to the Vilna ghetto. And when Paula and her mother were transported to a labor camp, they hid Paula's five-year-old sister, Linka, in a large knapsack. When they arrived at the camp, Paula's mother asked her to guard Linka. But the Germans discovered Linka. She was ripped from Paula's arms, and Linka was murdered in Auschwitz, and Paula's world was destroyed. Paula survived five concentration camps. She was in the Holland of hell. And then she arrived in New York City as a refugee in 1947. She got a college degree. She graduated as one of only three women in her medical school class. She taught at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. She mentored generations of future doctors. She nurtured and she healed. And because I know some of the stories, saved countless children from death, doing for them what she could not do for Linka. She committed her life to healing and to combating anti-Semitism, telling her story to countless public school kids all around New York. And years later, when Teddy got sick, Paula persevered, taking him to shul as long as it was safe for him and for others to do so, getting the home care he required and enough of it so she could continue her own vital life, and making of this Holland perhaps not a Garden of Eden, because that's the realm of fantasy and not reality, but making of Holland a home as she had decades earlier after the war. She engaged in little to no fantastical idolatry. Did she wish her circumstances were different? Who wouldn't? But then day after day, she resolved to make of her circumstances 
her painful, dislocated, unexpected, and at times tragic circumstances. The fullest, richest, and most beautiful life one could live in Holland. Rabbi Lebo, all those years ago, was so right, and he reoriented my life's compass. Without his guidance, I would not have stayed as a rabbi. I would have sought after my Rome and probably always would have found it elusive. He made Holland for me whole and holy. He did not say to me, Adam, those are hard problems. Let's figure them out together, which would have been its own version of a helpful lifeline. Instead, he said, this is the rabbinate. Do you want it? And I say to us all, this is what it is to be human. Do you want it? And if so, how will you embrace it and eke from it wellness and beauty? On the rainiest of days, how will you make it sunny and beautiful here in Holland? At the end of the section on Neila and Rabbi Lou's book, he writes this. After describing the accumulation of pain and longing he witnesses in the faces of his community, all in their own versions of Holland. He writes, and just at that moment, just when I think I can't bear to see this one second more, I see a great light beneath the suffering in all these faces. I suddenly come to realize that what I'm seeing only looks like only suffering, but really all of it, the sunken skin, the lined brow, the clouded eyes, it's just the convulsions of a great love as it struggles to come to the surface of our lives. And I always feel then that I'm standing at the head of an army of infinite power. I feel that right now. And I charge this army. Go seek out your answers and discover and create the lights that are present in the darkest dark. Go explore your Holland and go make it holy. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.